Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Russ Beck, an author and a senior lecturer in the USU English Department, recently spent some time in southeastern Utah researching the history of uranium mines and mills, talking with local residents about the after effects of the uranium boom in the Moab Monticello Blanding area. Today we'll hear the radio feature that he produced for UPR. We'll also talk with Russ Beck, with Kira Withrow, who works for the Moab Museum, and with Kirk Benj, who until recently was director of the San Juan County Public Health, is now director of Tri-County Health Department, Duchesne Daggett, and Uanta Counties. So we welcome in Russ Beck. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Appreciate you joining us. And uh, Kirk Benj is with us. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. So, uh, Russ Beck, uh, how did this begin? Uh, how does a author and senior lecturer uh, get involved in, a, in doing a story like this? Uh, I think that's a fair question, uh, and I'm glad Kirk's here because he was a big part of that. I, I, I got a call last summer from Kirk saying that he knew um, he, he knew a guy had come into his office with just a giant folder of information about the cancer cases down in Monticello, and he wrote, uh, called me up and said, I think there's a book here. Uh, and so I started looking into it a little bit, and I, I was like, I think it would work better as a radio story. But, yeah, there's definitely something here. Uh, and then I went down. And uh, Kirk could actually probably tell you a little bit more about that, although <laughs> the guy, I mentioned him in the story. He He's declined to actually be a part of the story anymore, which is okay. But uh, but that's how it all started, was a, a, a dead end, I guess. So. Yeah, as, as sometimes happens, right? But but uh, uh, fascinating history and very impactful history. So, uh, Kirk Benge, tell me more about that. Well, I think, you know, the interesting thing to us, I think both Russ and I had a conversation, really what we wanted to do was maybe tell a story about the gentleman and and his, his history. Uh, you know, he had family members who had um, grown up around the mill, worked at the mill, and he knew a number of people who had been directly impacted by health effects from the mill. And really, I think what we wanted to do when we were discussing it was was really just tell that personal story about one person's um, experience. And ultimately, it didn't come out that way, right? But it is an important, I think, opportunity for us to to maybe just discuss some of the history uh, of you know, uranium mining in Utah and some of the history and some of those effects and, and bring awareness to, to the, you know, some of the long-term health effects that, that some of the people um, suffered who were involved with those things. Well, uh, Russ Beck, thanks for bringing uh, this to us. Uh, so we're going to hear this yeah. next. is about 13 minutes uh, in length. Anything you especially want to people to listen for while we listen to this piece? Honestly, my favorite part, and I think Kirk would probably agree with this too, is uh, uh, Bill Boyle's interview. Uh, he was he was incredible. I walked in, and he almost instantly started talking as eloquently as he does in this piece. Like I didn't really prep him for anything; he just started jumping in. Uh, I think he's a huge asset. I yeah, I I was really happy with uh, my conversation with him. So. He's he's uh, what a publisher editor of the paper down there, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, hear the piece. We'll uh, when we come uh, when uh, after the piece, we will uh, have more with um, Russ Beck and Kirk Benj. We also have an interview I recorded uh, over the weekend with Kara Withrow, who will appear in this piece as well. So here's uh, Russ Beck's uh, piece uh, on uranium milling and mining in the southeastern Utah area. 
Uranium gets its name from Uranus, the planet, and the Greek god of the sky. In Greek mythology, Uranus hated his offspring and buried them in the earth. Gaia sent the titan Kronos to extract vengeance on Uranus, which he did by mutilating his father. The blood that dripped down from the sky boiled when it hit the earth and eventually mutated into monsters that would go on to plague mankind. Uranium, like its namesake god, is also associated with mutation and death. Before uranium became one of the most sought-after elements in the world and changed the literal landscape of southeastern Utah, H.G. Wells theorized in his 1914 book, The World Set Free, that there was potential energy to be harnessed in atoms that could be transformed into world-ending weapons. When scientists first thought of splitting the atom, the most obvious option was the largest naturally occurring atom on the periodic table, uranium. Niels Bohr called uranium a wobbly droplet. It has 92 electrons spinning around a fat nucleus. And with six of those 92 electrons looking to bond with nearly anything willing, uranium wants to fall apart. This is great for energy and weapon possibilities, but bad for nearly every other reason. Because uranium is so unstable, it shoots off subatomic bullets called free radicals that can literally pierce DNA and cause cancer. The Manhattan Project rushed to develop the bomb that would end all wars. They thought there was a worldwide shortage of uranium, and so the U.S. bought up all of it they could find. For centuries, uranium was considered, and even called, a garbage rock. When the idea of experimenting with uranium first came about, most of the early minerals were scavenged from heavy metal tailing piles. In fact, the same tailing piles where Marie Curie sourced some of her first uranium also probably went to sourcing materials for the bombs dropped on Japan. Hundreds of mines and half a dozen mills dotted the Four Corners area during the peak of the uranium boom. Three of those mills were in Utah, near the small towns Moab, Monticello, and Blanding. Each mill processed thousands of pounds of yellow cake that went on to be used in nuclear bomb tests in Nevada and power plants all over the world. All three mills are in different stages of production and cleanup. Monticello's mill is completely cleaned up and contained. In Moab, they're in the process of cleaning up the Atlas Mill. Daily, big trucks load up train cars that transport tailings up the highway to a spot that's safer than where they currently sit. Yards from the Colorado River. And finally, the White Mesa Mill is the only operating uranium mill in the nation. It processes both new ore and tailings from other mills from all over North America. My high school buddy, Kirk Benj, the director of San Juan County's Public Health, invited me down to Monticello to research this story. Because he was busy attending statewide meetings related to COVID-19, he couldn't initially come with me to the mill site. Over breakfast, he told me to head south out of town and look for a bend in the road near the golf course. The first time I went looking, I drove right past it and got halfway to Blanding before I realized I had missed it. Later that day, Kirk came with me to comb over the site. There's a, that's a woodpecker. There's a fox, a black fox that lives out here that I've seen several times. We looked at the memorial site that included plaques explaining the history of the mill. They outlined horrific stories of those who had been exposed to the dust that continually kicked up from the mill. There's a picnic table next to a sturdy welded grill. We searched for where the mill stood but had trouble figuring it out. We compared the photos on the plaques to our surroundings. Yeah, what, can we make any landmarks out? There's yeah, a water tower, is that still around? No, there isn't a water tower anymore. I don't Actually. know exactly where the mill was here. I mean, I guess that's a testament to the good job they did. <laughs> the small valley where the mill once sat now has springs spilling into a stream that eventually flows to Montezuma Creek. It looks vibrant and alive even in the fall, except for a handful of skeletal trees near the memorial. It's a set of memorial trees surrounded by fencing. A lot of the trees have been killed, unfortunately. Little 
bronze plaques saying names overlook the valley where the mill was. Some of the tailings now sit under a golf course across the highway from the old mill site, but the mill continues to affect the town of Monticello and those that can't quite escape its now non-existent shadow. Later that day, I talked to Bill Boyle, the editor of the San Juan Record. Everyone has a family connection at some level here. My father died of lung cancer and a brother died of brain cancer, and you don't have to go very far before you find people who have been impacted very personally by cancers. Uh, mill site closed 1962. The last employee of the mill site was my mother. And she was pregnant with me, and her job was to box up box after box after box of records and employment records, which would have very, been very, very helpful. Uh, the mill site operated, started um, before the war uh, with vanadium, uh, became a uranium mill during the the Cold War during the, the the uranium boom time. There was a tailings pond down there and the kids would go swim in the tailings pond and and, uh, and we lived downwind. The prevailing wind goes from the southwest and so the, the town would be caked with dust from the mill just about every morning. People talked about uh, screens on their front doors, you know, the metal on a screen would deteriorate in a couple of years. And, and then you combine that with the downwinders from the open air testing in Nevada, and we're right in that pattern too. And when you study the Cold War, you realize it was a war, but the front of that war was not in East Germany like military people thought. The front of that war was in Monticello, Utah, in Natarita, Colorado, and in Hanford, Washington, and in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and, and there were casualties from that war, including in this quiet little town. I left Bill to find Kirk again. We spent some of that afternoon searching for Moki steps carved in cliffsides, remnants of the Puebloans who lived on the plateau long before the mills were erected. Later that night, we went to his son's football game. Monticello played Blanding. Parents cheered through face masks as the sun went down. The next day, I headed up to Moab and the Atlas mill site. On July 6th, 1952, Charlie Steen's shoes were falling apart on his feet as he trudged through the punishing Colorado Plateau Desert. Here's Kira Withrow, an historian who works for Moab Museum on Charlie Steen. Charlie Steen actually was one of the poorer people that showed up without very much equipment and had to, you know, go out with old tools and old Geiger counter and he was he was basically the held together with duct tape guy. Car was broken down, his shoes were falling apart. Like like Charlie was gambling everything that he had on finding it. And he had nothing left to gamble when he found it. On that day he found what would become Mivita Mine, one of the most productive uranium mines in the United States. It sat between the then small farming towns of Monticello and Moab, Utah. Steen became a millionaire. Although many people already flocked to the desert to stake their claim, Steen, with his large personality and larger pocketbook, became the best advertisement for uranium mining in southeastern Utah. Steen would bronze those same shoes later and display them proudly in his home after he made his millions. They're now housed in the Moab Museum. Most of Mavita's ore findings were processed by the Uranium Reduction Company just outside of Moab. The waste slurry was stored in an unlined pond next to the Colorado River. The Uranium Reduction Company sold in 1962 and was renamed the Atlas Uranium Mill. Atlas was privately owned, where Monticello's was a federal mill. Moab is now known for its red rocks, mountain bike trails, and great hikes, but uranium still leaves its smudges on the town. Rim Cyclery was opened by the Groff brothers, who were both former uranium workers. Many famous jeep and bike trails were originally built as passageways between mines. 
The Atlas Mill closed in 1984, but the mill site is still being cleaned up today. At one point, the tailings pile was 90 feet high, and all of that now has to be accounted for and contained so it won't continue to poison people. On my way out of Moab, I stopped by what's left of the tailings pile. There's a lot of shipping containers, uh, and the railway is right here. My understanding is that they're putting a lot of the tailings in uh, shipping containers and moving it about the 30 miles uh, up to Crescent Junction, which is where you get off the freeway to come down to Moab, and that's where it's going to be stored. And my understanding is they're storing it there because there isn't as much chance of seepage up there. Uh, what I'm seeing is a lot of big, heavy machinery, lots of dump trucks, and there's water tanks that follow anything that's moving to keep the dust down, because obviously the dust is, is really problematic. Uh, there's a barbed wire fence that says it's electrical with a no trespassing sign uh, in the United States Department of Energy. There's a lot of biohazard signs, soil contaminated areas. I don't know if you can hear this. There's a slight buzz because it seems like their electrical fence isn't properly grounded. There's a lot of lizards running around, a lot of little red and pink lizards. I can also see the Colorado River, which is within maybe 100, maybe 200 yards. Uh, from the tailing pile. I can also, if I look north, I can see the zigzagging road that goes up to Arches. Charlie Steen, I think, would have been able to see the mill from his house, which is perched on a, a cliff going into Moab. I think I can see it. It's now a restaurant. The Atlas Mill didn't shut down because the area ran out of uranium. It shut down because as the Cold War cooled, so did the demand for uranium. Again, here's Kira Withrow. It's not like they exhausted anything. They just it stopped being processed. They didn't get really to get it from that thing for a lot cheaper. Um, and then demand went down. But it's all still here. So if the demand ever goes back up, you guys are gonna get it. <laughs> we're just gonna open everything that we shut down. Mills follow what's called a bucket model of costs. There's a lot of costs up front to build the mill. Then, when the mill becomes operational, costs drop dramatically. When surrounding mines dry up, or as the case with the Atlas Mill, the demand drops out, there's another huge cost to clean up and remediate the area around the former mill. There's currently only one fully licensed conventional uranium mill in the nation. It's on Highway 191 between Blanding and the small town of White Mesa on the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation. Although most of the uranium mines in the area have stopped production, the mill still churns out usable uranium. In addition to processing new uranium findings, White Mesa also reprocesses tailings from across the continent and then contains and stores the repurposed tailings. One way to stay down in the bottom of the bucket of costs in the area where operations are still relatively cheap and profitable is to find a way to never actually close. The White Mesa mill still processes local ore, but now it's become the processing center for an entire continent. The retention ponds at White Mesa Mill reflect Bears Ears National Monument. The mill is closer to White Mesa than Blanding, and because it's just a short drive from Monticello and Moab, the people of the town know the dangers. Aided by the watchdog group, the Grand Canyon Trust, the small community fights to protect the land and its precious little water. The groundwater under the mill does flow away from the community, and there are state-of-the-art detection practices being used in and around the mill site. But when you're dealing with something like uranium, in the quantities that the White Mesa Mill is, there are still risks. I originally went to southeastern Utah to interview a guy who had first-hand experience with the mills. He had family members die of cancer and dedicated a big chunk of his life to helping people like his family. I talked to him on the phone for a few months, and every time he asked me how I felt about mining, he always phrased it as a binary question. Are you for or against mines? 
I said I was neither, and it wouldn't come up in the story. As my visit got closer, he appeared more agitated on the phone. Minutes before I loaded into my car to record an interview with him, he canceled on me. He told community members that he wouldn't talk to an environmentalist reporter anymore and that there had to be a better way. I understand his trepidation. I get why he would be worried about chatting with someone not from Monticello after everything that's happened there. The history of Monticello is the same as the history of most of the West. People not from an area come in and change it. In the case of Monticello and Moab, it's a history that is beginning to heal. Again, here's Bill Boyle of Monticello, Utah. The federal government spent $250 million cleaning up this community. That is a significant project. And, and one of the fears that, that we have here is that people think that Monticello in 2020 is the same as Monticello in 1960. And whereas I knew lots of friends growing up here in this community who suffered direct effects of cancer or the secondary effects of family members from cancer, that's not the case anymore, and so I, I don't think that it's a dangerous community like it may have been when it was the front line of the Cold War. When uranium prospectors search for ore deposits, they often look for a yellow circle in the rock. The Colorado Plateau still has a metaphorical circle all around it, but with a lot of work, it's becoming safer every year. You're listening to Access U-Time, Tom Williams, and that was a Russ Beck's piece uh, created for Utah Public Radio about uh, uranium mines and mills and the legacy in southeastern Utah. Uh, so, Russ Beck, thanks for that piece. Um, it, uh, a lot we want to talk about here. We'll go to break uh, first and come back and, and do some talking. But um, just initially here, it, 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 it struck me, you originally went to... Uh, mainly get a personal story of this gentleman, right? But he, um, he backed out. Um, and his question to you was, are you for or against the mines? Yeah. And I grew up in an area, I mean, I grew up in central Utah, which had a lot of coal mining in it. And I, it was always a political issue. Like mining was always a political issue and it still is in southeastern Utah, I, I think. And so I think that's why, I, I don't know. I, I think that that's why people are a little timid to to jump into anything because it's the backbone of a lot of the economy still down there. So it makes sense to me. So yeah, it's it's. I it, think he was afraid that I was going to like write a story that was uh, skewering mining in Utah or something like that, and he really didn't want that to happen. So yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, dive into this a little more uh, before we go to break, uh, Kirk Benj. It's it's uh, strikes me. Uh, at the time that this story was done, you're the public health director in that area, right? And so obvious health after effects from the uranium boom. Um, uh, and at the same time, you're dealing with, uh, you know, coronavirus. It's, it's a broad range of things a public health director has to deal with, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we deal with a lot, you know, and there's, it can be difficult, I think, sometimes to really um, capture the nuance that goes into public health and the and the issues that we face because we are trying to strike a balance between, um, you know, individual rights, property owners' rights. Um, you know, we're trying to strike a balance between the local economy, but also seeking to try to protect health and identify ways where we can protect health. Uh, you know, and nowhere is probably that more obvious than. You know, the issues around masks and mask mandates and, and vaccine with COVID and, and where do we strike that balance and when are we infringing on an individual's right to maybe mine their property or access mineral rights or, 
or go about their business or operate their business the way they want, or when does that infringe on their neighbor's rights to um, to be free of disease? Um, and, and public health really is walking that line and trying to identify where we can make improvements in health, but our goal certainly is not to stifle innovation or, or stop businesses or shut down economies. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have more. We're talking with Russ Beck and uh, Kirk Benj. Uh, Russ Beck is a, an author. He's a senior lecturer in the USU English Department, and he recently was in southeastern Utah researching the story that you just heard here on UPR about uh, uranium mines and mills in southeastern Utah and the, and the legacy that has followed that. We're also talking with Kirk Benj, who uh, until recently was director of San Juan County Public Health, is now director of Tri-County Health Department. We'll have more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Idaho National Laboratory, celebrating Women's History Month throughout March. INL values the many contributions that women make at the lab and in the community. More information on inclusive careers is available at INL.gov. Support also comes from Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. The forces that shape everything in the universe are the same as the forces that are shaping who we are and what our identity is. On the next Radio Lab, xenon, hydrogen, carbon, iron, uranium, and thorium, lithium, cesium, and plutonium, helium, elements. They literally move mountains. And us. I mean, gratitude is like not even the word. That's on the next Radio Lab. This morning at 10 on UPR. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, Russ Beck, who's an author and senior lecturer in the USU English Department, recently spent some time in southeastern Utah researching the history of uranium mining and milling and talking with local residents about the after-effects of the uranium boom in the Monte, uh, Monticello, Moab, and Blanding area. And we heard his radio feature that he produced for UPR, and uh, now we're talking with him and with Kirk Benj, who is, until recently was director of the San Juan County Public Health and is now director of Tri-County Health Department, which is in northeastern Utah, Duchesne, Daggett, and Uinta counties. Um, so, gentlemen, let's, uh, let's go next to some history um, and uh, let's hear my interview from this Saturday with uh, Kara Withrow, uh, who you heard in Rusbeck's uh, piece. This is about uh, 10 minutes. Um, Kara Withrow works with the uh, History Museum there. Right now we're talking with Kira Withrow. Uh, she's a historian who works for the Moab Museum. So uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So Happy you, to be here. Yes, great to, great to have you with us. So you talked to Russ uh, in his piece about Charlie Steen, a famous uh, figure, and uh, I guess at the museum there, you have his bronzed shoes. Why are those important? Uh, well, his his shoes are important because he was wearing them when he made the uh, Mazita mine uh, discovery. So he was a prospector here in Moab, along with quite a few other people in the early 50s, um, looking for uranium during the uranium boom. Um and he went down just south of town and was on his last dollar, literally, like had, had maybe $5 to his name. Uh, and it was his last shot. He had borrowed a bunch of equipment on loan and had to, was, was in debt uh, 
out for borrowing all of this equipment, went down to the Mambita mine and found uh, a huge uranium deposit, which turned out to be one of the largest uranium deposits in the Moab area, which skyrocketed Moab into the position of being the uranium capital of the world. And I imagine that, so that the boots that he was wearing at the time were yeah. were historic boots, and he had them bronzed himself. <laughs> he, he was quite proud of them, I guess. Very, he considered them very lucky. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so he was. I imagine he wasn't the only person out there looking for uranium. Once, uh, I imagine you know, and, until um, until the the Cold War, till World War Two, and the Cold War, etc. Uh, uranium, you know, wasn't valued, but at, at a certain point, I guess maybe overnight, uranium became very valued. Yes, I I think that's that's correct to say, safe to say. Um, there wasn't much use for uranium until the possibility of of nuclear power became uh, possible, uh, which is a silly sentence, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was around 1950 that that technology came into being, and then um, the the Cold War, of course, was also the race um, that everyone was trying to find uranium to supply that demand. And it's, of course, big demand. Um, I, I think you say Steen became a millionaire. Oh, yes, overnight. Um, one, of, one of Moab's first millionaires, and uh, he was actually responsible for a lot of the... Um, creation of infrastructure and um, uh, pushing Moab into <laughs> into the 20th century, because really up until that point, there a lot of folks in this town didn't have electricity, didn't have running water, and his discovery and the money that it brought to Moab really helped Moab um, establish itself as a, as a more modern town. So understand Steen, uh, Steen was an important figure of big personality, and of course all that money uh, was was able to, I guess, push Moab and, and the uranium mills. Yes, very much. Um, he His discovery, of course, just created something similar to like a gold rush, uh, putting Moab on the map as a place where you could get rich quick, and so there was just a huge flood of um, people coming from all over the world, particularly prospectors and miners, uh, coming to cash in on that um, opportunity, <laughs> and quite a few of them did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the, I guess that period, this was good economically for Moab in this area. Incredibly, yes. Um, there were a lot of people working in the mine who were making uh, what today would be about one hundred and fifty dollars an hour, uh, <laughs> and those were those were just common miners. So you can imagine that the the people who were Actually, buying and 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 owning the mines were making bundles, Just unbelievable amount of money. Uh, so the the a lot of those mills still have plenty of uranium up there. I understand. Yes, that is true. Um, Utah has is one of the largest uh, and most plentiful deposits of uranium in the West, and um, possibly still in the world. Uh, the issue is that. Most of that uranium is um, no longer profitable to mine and refine, so it's still here. <laughs> yeah. If it ever becomes valuable again, then we'll see a reopening of a lot of the mines that have currently shut down. I guess just the economics of it, uh, 
dictated that uh, I guess the, they went elsewhere to, to find uranium. And I guess overall, uh, uranium oh. demand uh, declined. Uh, so um, are there any other objects that, that relate to the uranium mining there at the museum? Um, quite a few. We have we have some old Geiger counters. We have um, two little vials of uh, unprocessed uranium ore and processed uranium ore, which is called yellow cake. Uh, we have just a small display. We've recently done a huge renovation on the museum and changed how we um, hold objects and what kind of objects we need to have in our collection. Uh, so we have a smaller collection now, but um, we have a few of the uh, pieces um, legal documentation and, and letters between some of the early prospectors uh, discussing how it's going and talking to their investors and things like that. It's interesting. Um, Charlie Steen, I imagine, would have been out there with a Geiger counter, which which would mean something different to us than to him, right? <laughs> he, he's looking for <laughs> uranium, looking to, to make money, and... and we, uh, with the benefit of time, looking over his shoulder, would be saying, ah, boy, I don't know, right? <laughs> yes, very much. I, I think in the 50s, um, they just really didn't have a full understanding of the dangers of, of radiation. Uh, and now, today, we're very, very aware of the dangers of radiation. So when we see a Geiger counter jump, <laughs> we step back. But they would have definitely been very excited to see that. So... Uh, it, you say that uh, the museum hold, you know, has some correspondence, etc. Uh, you mentioned that Charlie Steen got really, really rich off of this, and uh, this, the economy boomed during during these times. I imagine that's still part of the legacy, alongside the you know the the negative aspects, which are which are legion. Uh, there's a big mm-hmm. economic legacy from this. Very much so. Um, like I said, most of Moab before. Charlie Steen's discovery did not have water or electricity. Um, I think there was one telephone in town. And uh, in the next, I think, seven or eight years, the population of Moab um, quintupled, so five times uh, the population growth. Um, And with that came a huge host of of building projects for better roads, schools, um, infrastructure and uh, housing. Um, so most of the housing, a large part of the housing that's in Moab today was initially built um, using the money that was brought into town from uranium. So in, in truth, Moab was, was built by uranium. Um, and of course, today is continued by tourism, but we owe, we owe a great deal to uranium. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say about uh, you know this legacy, the history of uranium? Well, it's interesting because people often focus on the negative aspects of uranium mining and mining in general, um, and they really, uh, I think it's a generational thing that, that there's just not enough of a um, cultural memory of what it was like before uh, mining brought so much wealth to Utah. Um, overall, I think Utah is has had more benefit than loss due to mining as an overall. Obviously, individuals who have been affected by radiation poisoning, that's that's a different story. Um, But I think it's fascinating to look back at it and see the positives and then 
carry that forward as we look at the industries that are carrying Utah's economy forward now, such as um, tourism and the new tech boom. And we're starting to wonder if these things are negative or positive, but I think in, in hindsight we will see that they are also more positive than negative. Well, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Uh, Kira Withrow, historian who works with the uh, Moab Museum, has, uh, has been with us. Thanks. My pleasure. Thank you so much. So it's a conversation with Kira Withrow. Uh, we reached her on uh, Saturday. We got with us uh, for the hour, uh, Kirk Benj, who is uh, Director of uh, Public Health for Tri-County Health Department now, but uh, previously, recently, was uh, Director of the San Juan County Public Health. And uh, we have Russ Beck, an author and senior lecturer in the USU English Department, who recently uh, was in southeastern Utah researching the history of uranium mining and milling, talking with local residents about the after-effects of the uranium boom in that area, and uh, gave us that radio piece that we heard earlier in, in the hour. Uh, so, Russ Beck, I'll turn to you first here. Uh, we talked with Kara Withrow about, uh, you know, the economic benefits uh, from uranium, the uranium boom. Um, and, of course, we know about uh, the, the, the horrible effects of, uh, of radiation in, in this whole area. And we haven't even talked much about, you know, downwinders. Um, uh, so this is very, very complicated and I guess illustrated yeah. by the fact that the the gentleman you went down to interview uh, uh, pulled out. He he, it's just very controversial. It is, and I I just, just before I get into your actual question there, thank you for getting a hold of Kira. I, I when I interviewed her, the they were literally doing the renovations in the museum that she mentions in that, and so the audio was pretty pretty miserable. And so I'm so glad that uh, you were able to get get a hold of her because she's. She's fantastic, and she she really knows that history really well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I don't. I mean, we wouldn't have a lot of the trails. I, I think I mentioned this in the piece, but a lot of the trails in Moab and around that are named are are uh, passageways between old mines, and a lot. I mean, you can still see uranium everywhere down there in the in the names of things, and uh, I don't think Moab would be Moab without uranium. Uh, it wouldn't be the Red Rock capital of the world without uranium, the mountain biking capital of the world, all these things is because of uranium in a lot of ways. And so whether you think that's a good or bad thing, I guess that's up to you. But yeah, I mean, uranium is the reason why Moab is Moab. So, yeah. So Kirk Benj, uh, Bill Boyle in uh, Russ's piece, uh, he talks about this history. That, of course, the, the uranium boom came about because of the Cold War and, uh, you know, the nuclear arms race. Um, and he says, you know, that we, we consider that the Cold War was, the front of that war was maybe in, you know, Berlin or somewhere. He says, really, the front of that war was in places like Monticello. Yeah, I really love, I, I think Bill Boyle is, is a treasure, and I, I think he's he's one of my favorite people out there, and he's got such a, a good understanding of the history and the nuance that comes with um the uranium mill, the uranium mining that happened in that area, and the cleanup. And he, he's a real, a real source of, of great information. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, to his point, um, the, maybe the front was uh, on some of these people that were working in these mines and, and engaged in trying to help create some of these stockpiles of weapons. And, and, and maybe we forget that 
there were people who who did lose their lives, uh, you know, as a direct result of of being involved in some of these activities, and in some cases, just living in the town nearby, um, unaware that they were um, that we were handling the the radioactive waste in a way that was endangering people in those towns. Yeah, it's it's amazing to hear those stories. We did a program in February with uh, with some experts uh, who had studied uranium mining and milling, and uh, you know they, they <laughs> you know the kids would go play in the stuff that they, they just didn't know. Yeah, they still do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they, there's still tailing piles just all over there. Uh, and yeah, right, Kirk. I mean, you you've seen the tailing piles all over and around there. Yeah, I was going to say it's a, it was a common theme, I think, with people that I've spoken to that uh, they were not aware that, you know, back in the, you know, 60s and 70s and um, prior to discovering some of the health effects, they were not aware that the tailings were something that they should be concerned about. And there were ponds there that, uh, you know, kids swam in. Um, and certainly we wouldn't want to do that today. And we have a lot greater understanding for for the issues around that, and there are real attempts to try to protect health. But, yeah, it was a time when, when we were, I think, naive to um, some of the serious long-term consequences of, of exposure to low-dose radiation. So, Kirk Benger, is there monitoring still today? Is there, you know, are there worries about, um, you know, still um, after-effects of this mining and, and milling in, in, say, the water or, or, you know, just in the environment? Absolutely. There's there's ongoing monitoring and, and, you know, the Department of Environmental Quality and the Radiation Control Board um, is very involved in that. And, and you know, I, I probably can't speak as much to it as I would like. I feel like I'm, I was only ever tangentially sort of directly involved. But I feel like, um, you know, from what I know, it is a very political subject. And, and as people have become very aware of the potential health in- impacts of radiation, uh, they they want to hold people accountable. They want to hold the government accountable, and they want to ensure that their their health is taken in into the highest priority, and that there aren't ongoing effects. And I want to highlight what Bill Boyle said at the end of that piece, which was the Monticello of today is not the Monticello of the 1960s and 70s. The government spent millions upon millions to clean that up. And, and from our perspective, it is cleaned up. If you go out there with a Geiger counter, and I, I think, Rush, you brought a Geiger counter when you came down and we were out there touring, uh, you won't yeah. detect anything above background radiation anymore. Um, but it is a political issue, and when you go down to the active mill um, outside of White Mesa, um, you know, people are very concerned, and, and there are often rumors that creep up that say, oh, the water is contaminated or et cetera. Uh, but the reality is very different. The reality is there are multiple monitoring wells. The reality is that there aren't um, tail radiation. Really, isn't the the primary concern. What we're monitoring is uh, some of the chemicals that were used in the leaching process back in the day that did contaminate groundwater historically, and we're monitoring those plumes to make sure they don't move. Um, no one's health is currently at risk, and. We're continuing to do active monitoring and be very involved to try to ensure that no person is being exposed to either the chemicals that were used to extract the, um, the uranium or the 
radioactive um, uh, elements themselves. And I think public health and environmental quality have been very involved in trying to ensure a very safe and healthy environment throughout that region. Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll have our final segment uh, on this subject. We're talking with Russ Beck, who's an author and a senior lecturer of the USU English Department. Recently spent some time in southeastern Utah researching this history and uh, the legacy and after effects. And we heard his uh, piece, uh, radio piece, earlier in the hour. We're talking with Kirk Benj as well, who until recently was director of San Juan County Public Health. He's now director of Tri-County Health Department. We'll have more following this. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Utah State University Extension 4-H, receiving grants from the Utah STEM Action Center for Computer Science and Robotics Clubs in the Washington County School District. The grants will run for three years to assist with the challenges of intergenerational poverty. All it takes is a few sunny, warm days, and every gardener feels that need to plant. Sometimes that desire overrides our better judgment, and we plant tender seedlings before the danger of frost has passed. Don't worry, you can fulfill that inner need and still protect tender young transplants. Just be aware of the limits of each of these methods. Hot caps and frost blankets provide about 2 to 3 degrees of added protection, so instead of freezing at 32, they are good down to about 30 degrees. Transparent, hard plastic plant protectors give even more cold temperature defense at about 4 to 6 degrees below freezing. The ultimate shields against cold use a water barrier between layers of hard or flexible plastic that protect plants into the low 20s. Support for The Garden Spot comes from Anderson Seed and Garden, offering spring decor, garden supplies, and landscaping ideas. Located at 69 West Center Street in Logan. Information at andersonseedandgarden.com and on Facebook. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about uranium mining and milling, that history and its legacy in southeastern Utah with Russ Beck and Kirk Benj. You are welcome to join us by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Russ Beck, you originally had in your piece, and we took this out so we could read this separately. You have some information here. I'll give this to listeners if you know someone who has been adversely affected by uranium mill downwinding, contact the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health to see if you qualify for medical funding, especially if they lived near or on the Colorado Plateau between the 40s and the 90s and experienced lung cancer, uh, pneumoconiosis, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, tuberculosis, or emphysema. You can call 800-729-RECP. You can look on CDC's website, and we have some information on our website, upr.org, for more information. On our website, we have that information, and we'll also have uh, National Cancer Benefit Center and Office of Navajo Uranium Workers uh, website and phone numbers as well. So, Russ Beck, uh, you know, the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act uh, is still ongoing, though I, I... I do understand that sunsets uh, next year, and there are efforts to to re-up it. Yeah, and I hope they do. I, I, uh, there, there's still we're still feeling the after effects of this, and uh, it's a generational thing that needs to be uh, addressed. I, I would add one more thing to that too. The the uh, and help me out here, Kirk, but the the Blanding uh, Hospital, the the uh, Navajo Blanding Hospital, what's it called? 
Kirk, you know. In blending, uh, it's operated by Utah Navajo Health System. Yeah, they they actually also ha- are completely open to helping people out with this as well. They they are still receiving grant funding for that. Um, Monticello did ha- Monticello's hospital did have that for a while, but there it's sunsetted. But uh, blending, you can still get help. Even I mean, uh, <laughs> it's available to. Uh, uh, people who are Navajo and also people who aren't Navajo. Uh, so if you if you live in that area and it, it intimidates you to call the CDC, you can you can call the the local hospital there and they can help you out as well. So yeah, just wanted to throw that out. But yes, I hope they re up that. I, it's I think it's completely necessary. So yeah, I heard a, a statement from Congressman Owens. Uh, Burgess Owens, who is in favor of this, and he's trying to push for this. I'm sure there are other congressmen uh, working on this as well. Um, so, Kirk Benge, uh, I believe there is still, is there still an operating mill? I believe I heard that in Russ's piece. Yeah, there is an operating mill. It's uh, just a few miles south of Blanding uh, and a few miles um, north of uh, the Ute um, tribal area there, the tribal area of White Mesa, and so it is called the White Mesa Mill. It's operated just north of the White Mesa tribal area, um, and that still is operating, and, and my understanding is that they they do a lot of secondary processing, so they're able to um, extract um, uranium, and, and perhaps I think they may be doing vanadium as well still. They are, um, yeah, from, I've looked into that. From extracted, yeah, pre-extracted um, um, tailings, et cetera, from other sites, um, they're able to, to extract more of those um, compounds from, from already processed ore. And, and I think there's very little local ore um, being mined anywhere anymore, but a lot of reprocessing of existing tailings and a lot of reprocessing of existing or that uh, that's being done in that area. So, Russ Beck, in, in your piece, you talk about the there are still risks. Uh, I imagine the protections. Of course, the understanding is is ramped up from 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 the boom times, but there's still risks. There are, and I, I, I think I want to amend something I said before because, like, I I I I know there's still tailing piles there. You can go and see the tailings pile in, in Moab and stuff like that, but. I mean, they're doing a really good job of, of uh, cleaning everything up. But with all of that said, I know that uh, I talked to some local uh, kids down, down in Monticello, and uh, an activity is still going and, and finding the mines and going in there and different things like that, which to me feels a little dangerous uh, for a few reasons and stuff like that. So it is there. It is, there are still risks down there, but it is not the same, as, as Bill Boyle said, as Kirk said, uh, it is not the same as it once was. I think, I think it's, it's a safe, clean area. It's, it, there's, there's a lot of great stuff down there that's, that's, that's really good. So, yeah. So we just have about three minutes or so left. I uh, want to give each of you uh, a chance to maybe give your top takeaway from, from this history and this discussion uh, starting with Kirk Benj, you you were in this area. You were health director, of course. You have that perspective uh, now up in northeastern Utah. So as, as you as you look at this history, and I guess the current situation, what's what's your top takeaway from this? Well, I think for me, really, the top takeaway was what Bill Boyle said, which was, you know, we we didn't understand 
um, the the health the potential health impacts. And when we understood it, we spent a lot of money, um, a lot of time, a lot of effort to clean that up. And there were lives lost. And I hope that as we move into the future of you know reevaluating um, nuclear power plants as viable options as we as we look toward a future past um, you know ways to supplement coal and, and oil and gas in our country that we learn from our mistakes and we 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 pay careful attention into how we approach these things as we move forward and ultimately I think you know my takeaway really is um, there are risks we have uranium ore in the ground, and really the risk that you face as an individual is probably the radon that seeps up mm-hmm. into your basement from those deposits. And I would like to use this as an opportunity to remind people to, you know, get their homes tested for radon. Um, that is probably the ongoing thing that, that actually threatens health in the region, in the Colorado Plateau, is is radon and constant exposure to radon inside your home. And so... If you haven't ever had your home tested for radon, I would encourage people to do that um, and uh, and be aware that we do have uranium and we do have radioactive elements in the ground below us. And we'll turn to Russ Beck for a final word. What's your uh, what's your biggest takeaway from this whole experience and the reporting on this? Oh, it was it was a great experience. I, I'm so glad I got to do it. I, I think uh, I mean I'm glad Kurt touched on the actual health things because I think my final takeaway was if anybody writes a book about Utah's history, they're going to include uh, uh, Charlie, uh, Charlie Steen himself because he's fascinating. I, I didn't really touch on everything about him. He became a, uh, a state senator uh, in Utah. He was from Texas, and uh, he ran on a platform of drinking and gambling, uh, and he won uh, in a time when that seems insane to me uh, for Utah politics. Uh, and he's he himself is just a fascinating fascinating guy uh i obviously that has to do with uranium but it's more just uh the, the character that was charlie steen is, is really interesting and i would encourage everybody to go read his history because it's it's weird and great so yeah okay <laughs> well uh that's well, giving us an assignment there to, to ch- search out charlie steen's <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, history you got homework <laughs> very, very good so. very good well uh russ Beck, thank you so much for the piece and uh, for this research in history we appreciate you bringing that to us yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. And Kirk Benj, uh, thank you so much, and uh, good luck in your new role there in, in northeastern Utah. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, you know, we're out here actively vaccinating for uh, COVID-19, and, and I think that's going to keep me busy for, for the foreseeable future. By the way, how uh, how are things in northeastern Utah with regard to the, uh, the coronavirus? Are the numbers dropping, hopefully? Yeah, I think we've seen dropping statewide. And, you know, we I was in San Juan County when COVID hit and and we got hit fast and hard, particularly on the Navajo reservation portion of Utah. Uh, And, um, you know, moving up here to Tri-County, they never really experienced it in the same way that we did down in that part of the world. And and so it's been an interesting cultural shift to an area where people still maybe, I think, somewhat doubt whether this is even really happening because I haven't seen it personally yet, as opposed to where I was when people had been personally impacted very quickly. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Appreciate that. It was my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. 
And uh, we've got uh, resources, uh, we will, on our website uh, for uh, people who uh, believe they have been uh, have health effects due to exposure to radiation um, and other information uh, on our website, upr.org. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah Today. Spanish language programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible by the USU Office of Global Engagement, fostering diversity, inclusion, and cultural awareness by supporting international students and scholars and facilitating study abroad opportunities. Information at at globalengagement.usu.edu. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA. There's fear on the island of Puerto Rico as the debt crisis there affects thousands of low-income retirees who worry the government may never pay them back. Watching them making these long lines, the heat of Ponce, and not knowing what's going to happen. Puerto Rico's bankruptcy letters. That's next time on Latino USA. This morning at 11 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, statewide member-supported service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard online at upr.org and on the UPR app.